Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the astronomy podcast, Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me as always, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hi, Fred. Yes, I'm right here, Andrew, all ready to uh, have a great conversation about all the nuttiest things in space, as usual. Yes, and, and sometimes it does get a bit nutty. Uh, it does, yeah. <laughs> and our first story will be a little bit in the nutty realm because we're about to, uh, you know, in astronomical time terms, get smashed by a red dwarf. But um, when we're talking astronomical terms, it's a couple of billion years away, maybe not quite that much, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll also talk about um, antimatter and uh, where that's up to. And we're talking about something that's been known about for or discussed for a long, long time, coming up on 100 years or so, maybe longer, but um, we, uh, it's in the news again. And uh, Nature Astronomy is a new publication that's uh, just about to be launched. I think they've leaked a few pages on purpose, uh, but it's um, just about to um, herald itself as a as a new option for people who are, you know, geekier than you and me, probably, Fred. But <laughs> first of Could all... Could that be possible? I don't know. <laughs> probably not. Uh, first of all, the European Space Agency's um, Gaia mission has discovered that we're going to get hit by... Um, a, a red dwarf in the not too distant future, although it is for the human lifespan the great distant future. It's yeah. it depends yeah, what sort of time spans you you live in and work in. That's correct. Um, this is something to put in your diary for um, 1.35 million years down the track. Yes. Uh, not many of us have got one of those, but anyway, it's uh, it, it it is something that will happen. On about that uh, time scale, 1.35 million years. Uh, just to backtrack a bit, you mentioned the Gaia mission. Gaia is a spacecraft that uh, has now been in orbit for a couple of years. It is doing a marvellous job at de uh, detecting the distances and motions of stars out to well, m much more than a thousand light years. So well into the you know into the into the thickness of the galaxy. Uh, one of the interesting things that scientists are doing though with uh, the Gaia data is looking at our nearest neighbours in space, the nearest stars to the sun. And one of them, which has the rather less than romantic name of Gliese 710, it means it's uh, it's the 710th object in Dr. Gliese's catalogue uh, of, uh, of red dwarf stars. In fact, it's actually a red dwarf. But it turns out that in 1.35 million years, Gliese 710 will pass as close as 13,365 astronomical units from the Earth. What is an astronomical unit? Well, it is the distance from the Earth to the sun. 
So astronomers think in terms of that as being a sort of uh, baseline, if you like, a baseline measurement. Uh, in kilometres, that distance is 150 million kilometres. And so uh, what we're saying is that Gliese 710 will pass rather more than 13,000 of those 150 million kilometres from Earth. Now, that might sound like a long way, and indeed it is a long way. Uh, it's actually, I think I worked it out as uh, being 72 light days. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, if you think of the time light travel takes to, to get from that distance, it's a matter of days rather than hours. Um, it sounds like a long way, and it is a long way, but it could still have an effect on the inner part of the solar system. And that is because we think that the cloud of comets that surrounds the sun at a distance uh, about twice the distance that, um, that Gliese 710 will, will pass within, uh, that cloud of comets, uh, uh, basically, if it gets disturbed, it's called the Oort cloud. We know it's there because we see comets coming from there mm. um, uh, on relatively regular, uh, a relatively regular basis. But um, if that cloud gets disturbed by the passage of another gravitating object, which a star is, even a red dwarf star, then it could kick uh, comets into the inner part of the solar system. And perhaps over the next couple of million years following that uh, close encounter, we might find uh, that the Oort cloud is stirred up and that the inner part of the solar system uh, uh, receives what you might call a greater flux of comets than we are used to. Um, and that might mean that we have to watch out for things that might hit the Earth. It's uh, one of those uh, actual, actually interesting links between the, the stellar universe, the universe of stars, and our own local environment. So uh, it might actually uh, produce, uh, as I said, this uh, bombardment almost of comets passing through the inner solar system. We think, by the way, Andrew, that has happened before uh, because there are periods in the Earth's history uh, when it looks as though there has been something stirring up the outer solar system and maybe a passing star was responsible for that. Wow. Will um, this particular red dwarf still be a red dwarf in 1.35 billion years? 1.35 million years. Million years, uh, is, sorry. Yeah, and it will. In fact, um, it's really uh, red dwarf stars are actually, you know, they, they evolve very, very slowly. Mm. Uh, uh, the sun has evolved slowly over its 4.6 billion year lifetime, uh, red dwarf stars are even slower to evolve. And so it will be largely unchanged in 1.35 million years from what it is now. And indeed, our sun will be, will be the same. Um, what we'll see is a very bright object in the night sky, those of us who are still around in 1.35 million years, uh, which will appear to pass really relatively quickly through the night skies as it uh, as it passes by the earth wow fascinating oh, Although, passes by the inner solar system know, so. we, we won't be around to see that possibly but <laughs> humanity <laughs> might not be either i keep no. going there but um, that's a long way off isn't it uh, in, it is in it is terms of it's human interesting life to know mm. but we'll we'll you know um, we can ponder and we and we we're scientifically capable of having some sort of understanding of what might happen. So uh, it's not really that big a mystery. It's just, yeah, uh, interesting that we can detect these things so far out and, and know that they're on their way. It's, it's amazing, amazing science. 
Indeed You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Roger, your lives are here also. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, um, antimatter. We've heard about this. It's um, well documented in science fiction, so we all know it's real. We all, and we all know that you can have an antimatter gun and turn somebody into a fruitcake or something. Um, no, but seriously, why is antimatter in the news at the moment? Um, because there's something really big that we don't understand about antimatter. And uh, that, that is always... why it turns you into a fruitcake if someone exactly. shoots you. Right, yeah. <laughs> turns you into a fruitcake when you try and work it out. So uh, just to recap, uh, what is antimatter? Well, it is normal matter, but with the opposite charge, uh, electrical charge. Uh, and it actually goes back to the late 1920s when the prediction was made by Paul Dirac uh, he predicted that uh, particles would have their opposite counterparts uh, with uh, with a, an opposite electrical charge. So they knew about electrons in those days, which are subatomic particles with a negative charge. So the suggestion was that there should be a thing called a positron, which would be an electron with a positive charge. And likewise, uh, things called pr uh, the protons that are at the centre of hydrogen atoms, they were postulated to have an antimatter equivalent called an antiproton, uh, which will be at the centre of an anti-hydrogen atom. Uh, the, actually, the first uh, particle was the positron, the first particle to be actually physically discovered. That was in 1932. The antiproton, the, uh, the counterpart to the centre of a hydrogen atom, uh, didn't uh, reveal itself until 1955. Uh, so antimatter is a known entity. We know it's there. We know it exists because uh, it can be made in the laboratory, actually only in very small amounts because, of course, as soon as you try and bottle something up, uh, it reacts with the matter uh, that it's bottled up by. And turns it into uh, a fruitcake. So it, uh, it, it keep coming back to that. Yeah. Well, let me just um, elaborate a bit on the turning into a fruitcake. What happens when you bring a particle and its uh, equivalent antiparticle together is they annihilate one another and basically turn into energy. And the energy that's revealed is enormous, mm. um, uh, as you'd expect, because that famous equation E equals MC squared tells you that uh, for a very small amount of matter, you will get a very large amount of energy. And that's why science fiction authors love antimatter, oh, yeah. because they I mean, see it as the, as the fuel of the future. Well, when you explained it, it sort of brought it down into something normal. And people, <laughs> people have always, you hear antimatter and you think, oh, you know, this is just the biggest thing and it's so dangerous and scary, but it's just nature, really. Uh, it is nature, yeah. And it's nature that's relatively well understood, um, except for one aspect. And that is that our best understanding of the Big Bang, the event in which the universe was created, says that um, when particles uh, were created in the Big Bang, there should have been equal numbers of particles and their respective antiparticles. It's double-entry bookkeeping, Fred. Yeah, there should have been antimatter and normal matter. And what should have happened is that they should have all annihilated and you would have ended up with a universe that only contained radiation uh, and thus no atoms to make stars, no stars to make galaxies, no, uh, no clouds of dust to make planets and no humans uh, or other life forms to be made from those planets. We shouldn't really be here. Mm. If, all, if the antimatter and the matter were in equal proportions, we shouldn't be here. They clearly weren't. 
So we um, believe that all the matter we can see in the universe now is normal matter. There's no sort of cosmic signatures anywhere of antimatter. So why was there this inequality? We believe that what we can see is actually just a small residual uh, trace of the of the original matter in the universe, because most of it was annihilated by antimatter, but not quite all of it. And it's the not quite all of it uh, from which we are made and from which the universe of stars, galaxies and planets and everything else uh, is made. So that problem, why was there an imbalance between matter and antimatter, is one that occupies the minds of cosmologists and particle physicists alike. And the particle physicists have been pushing back the frontiers of knowledge by actually trying to isolate uh, atoms of antimatter and basically make measurements of them. I think the news uh, headlines last year sometime were, were full of the fact that um, scientists had identified something like 30 uh, I think it was uh, atoms of antimatter, uh, which was counted as a great breakthrough. What, why is this in the news now? It's a similar story, really. It's not the answer yet, but it's just a little bit more of the question. Uh, because what's now happened is scientists at uh, the Large Hadron Collider have basically managed to make and hold anti-hydrogen. So anti-hydrogen is an anti-proton with a positron going around it, uh, the, anti, uh, the, the opposite charge equivalent of a hydrogen atom. They've done it by means of electromagnets that hold this, uh, this uh, stuff in, in place. And then they've excited it with a laser. Now, what that means is that they've raised the electron to what we call a higher energy state. And that's actually how we make measurements of the properties of atoms by uh, firing a laser at them, watching what happens to the electrons and then looking at the radiation that comes back to us when the electrons fall from their high energy state. And it turns out that you can do the same thing with antimatter. And that's more or less the whole of the story, except to say that what has been found when this laser excitement took place for the antihydrogen, uh, the results that came back from that uh, are exactly what was expected. Ah. Um, they are exactly what uh, people thought they would see. So matter and antimatter, in terms of uh, the precision with which they release energy, uh, they look uh, identical. Uh, and this is the first experimental confirmation of that. Uh, the mystery continues, but uh, scientists are doing experiments like this in order to try and work out where uh, all that matter went that was annihilated by antimatter and why it wasn't all annihilated. So my antimatter ray gun isn't really that far away now by the sound of it. Uh, it sounds like it's not. You've just got to be careful how you hold it because uh, <laughs> you're made of matter. <laughs> yes. You don't yes. want to, you don't want to annihilate yourself. No, don't point it at a fruitcake either. But exactly. Quite so. Yes, you've you've got to remember the fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> or a rabbit, or something like that. Anyway. That's right. Okay. So one more piece of the puzzle in regard to antimatter. So uh, it's it's a it's a slow one. They chip away at it. Sounds like a giant lettuce, and you just peel off a leaf at a time, and eventually you'll get to the middle of it all. Uh, or not, as the case or may not, be. Or not, as the case may be. Because mm. <laughs> once you get to the middle, there's no lettuce. Uh, there's no lettuce either. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. That's uh, Fred Watson, um, and you're with Andrew Dunkley, and this is Space Nuts. 
What a matchup. And what a tee, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax and $10 activation fee. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on our T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Finally, Fred, we, we're going to talk about uh, something that I, I, I don't actually recall us ever discussing in our 12 months of doing uh, this podcast or our previous 300 years of doing radio interviews. Uh, but... We're going to talk about a publication that's being released called Nature Astronomy. We're, we're turning into magazine reviewers. <laughs> well, actually, Andrew, if you cast your mind back as far as the last podcast, we did talk about the fact that knowledge in astronomy is enshrined in the literature. It's enshrined oh, in the that's magazine. Too, that's too big a word for me. <laughs> literature. <laughs> the literature, yeah, we, it's a fancy name that we give to basically the store of knowledge that, yeah. uh, that, it, that is built up. And, um, you know, this is, is a slightly esoteric topic, but the fact that there is a new journal released by one of the most prestigious science journals in the world, that is Nature. Uh, it's been going since the early 19th century. Um, I remember actually uh, in, in our library at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, which is one of the best libraries in the world, uh, I spent many happy hours browsing through the first few years of Nature back in the, I can't remember, it was the 1840s or 50s, I think. And the discoveries that were going on there, the things that uh, science was all about, uh, we've, we've now moved on, but the, the, that magazine is still going. Uh, they're very uh, highly, um, uh, you know, orientated towards the Internet these days. Mm. And many of the journals that are published in the world of science uh, are actually published via the Internet. Uh, Nature has just released a new uh, a, a new kind of sub journal, a new research journal, which, as you said, is called Nature Astronomy and actually covers the science that uh, you and I spend a lot of our time uh, talking about. Um, it's uh, it's a noteworthy achievement because uh, there, there are other smaller, you know, there's, there's nature biotech and nature nanoengineering and things like that, these specialisms within the scientific world. Uh, but I think if I remember rightly, it's the first time astronomy has had its own. So it's launched early in 2017 um, and nature has kindly put up the contents list for, for this uh, new journal, which includes papers uh, like uh, one with the title Surface Water Ice Deposits in the Northern Shadowed Regions of Ceres. We talked about this yes, a couple of weeks we ago. We certainly did. Uh, the, the, ice in, uh, the ice in the northern, uh, northern polar region of Ceres. So we're pretty well ahead of the game. Uh, you know, you and I, uh, eat your heart out, nature. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure we won't stay in front for long. <laughs> I doubt we will. Uh, I think that's right. But, you know, that's um, it, it's giving a uh, look at... A, a, a very nice um, uh, snapshot of what we might find in this journal. Another paper entitled Variability in the Atmosphere of the Hot Giant Planet Hat P7b. Well, Hat P7b is an extrasolar planet. It's one going around another star. Um, and the fact that you can look at variability in the atmosphere of that and publish it in Nature is a tribute to the observing and uh, and deductive capacities of uh, of my colleagues in, in uh, departments of astronomy all over the world. So uh, Nature Astronomy 
astronomy, I think, will be uh, a very important journal for uh, we in the science. It will be a, a rapid way of publishing results. Nature is notoriously hard, Andrew, to get your papers into. Oh, yeah. um, I've only ever been the author of a nature paper once, and I think I was fifth on the list of authors or something. It wasn't me leading the research, uh, and that was a very long time ago. But um, uh, it is, it is a, as I said, it's a prestigious journal, and it's great to see it branching out in this way to cover the science of astronomy specifically. Yes, indeed. And, and I, I regularly... Uh sort of scroll through news websites week in, week out, day after day, actually, in, in another aspect of my daily life. And, and you quite often come across uh, news released by nature. So I, I imagine nature astronomy is going to just become another element of that, even though it'll probably only be read by the guy who publishes it and his mum. <laughs> but it, But seriously, uh, they will publish some pretty intriguing and deep and meaningful stuff. To put Indeed, it in layman's right. terms, and, yeah. and it will be uh, it will be worth reading, and it'll be the big discoveries, Andrew, that are reported in that because um, you know uh, your it's it's the sort of high point. It's one of the high points in your career when you get something into nature because it is a discovery of significance and something that will probably be uh, uh, looked back on over many years, if not decades, by the astronomical world. So it is uh, yes, it's important, but yes. Um, Perhaps it will be your mum who is the most interested in seeing your name there at the front of the uh, at the front of the author list. Why not? Just cut it out and put it up in a picture frame. As you would. Yes. As you would. Fred, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you, and uh, I'll see you next time. Very good. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and you've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast, and we invite you to join us every week. Uh, send us your feedback via Facebook and uh, don't forget to tell your friends and review us on iTunes. That'd be helpful. Uh, gets the word out. And we will certainly catch you again next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.